0: You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey everybody, I'm really glad you're here today to join this podcast of sex, love, and addiction. I have a colleague and a respected filmmaker today who did a film not that long ago called The Courage to Love. And it is about sex addiction and a little bit about sex offending. So I am going to call this show, The Courage to Love, in honor of my guest, Paul Gnocchio. Paul, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Rob.
0: Let me read a little bit to you about Paul. Paul is a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified sex addiction therapist with a private practice in the San Francisco Bay Area. He specializes in couples therapy and the assessment and treatment of sexual addiction. In addition to his clinical work, Paul is the creator of The Courage to Love a pioneering documentary film about sex addiction that tells the personal journeys of four individuals from the shame of sexual addiction to the hope and healing of recovery. And I'm pretty sure, because I saw that on Amazon Prime, that you can see Paul's uh, documentary on Amazon Prime and maybe also on YouTube. So welcome, Paul. Thank you, Rob. As I said to you earlier when we were talking before the podcast, I I sat down and watched the film again, and I hadn't seen it in a couple of years. And it never loses, it never gets stale for me. Like the emotional impact of seeing people, especially maybe now in the Me Too age, seeing men stand up, women too, but men standing up in particular and talking about how they really screwed up their lives related to their sexual problems, and then that they moved past that and found redemption and healing and have a different life now, I think that's a message that we really need in the culture and that we're not hearing enough of. Mm. And maybe that's my first question to you, Paul, is you know, while we are seeing all these men, Me Too and all that, kind of have fingers pointed at them, and then they get eliminated, and then it's on to the next one. We never see what happens afterward? You know, we don't see the hurt, the wounded, what that person goes through, what their family goes through, what, you know, all of that. And then out the other side where there might be hope for their future. Why do you think it is that we're kind of so invested in pointing fingers, but we don't actually want to explore the story?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I don't know if I have the answer, but I'll try. Um, You know, I I think the media, you know, just in itself is going to focus on the, the sensational and, 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 and all that. And so I'm
0: mean, going to ask this question, Paul, because it so directly relates to your film. I mean, you made a film about something we don't talk about. We don't like to discuss. We, yes. many people struggle with yes. sexual issues, sex addiction, um, not, if not misdemeanor offending like exhibitionism, these are not uncommon things in our culture, but nobody, and certainly the more profound harassment things like, you know, Harvey Weinstein and all that, but we're not talking about it in, any terms like you talk about in the film you know what i love about the film is is it shows people after it shows people saying i got in trouble but now i'm better i, I ruined my life but now i have a new life right i hurt people but now now i'm not hurting people anymore
1: yeah so i mean uh that yeah that's the important thing because as you said i mean when you when you learn about someone who else is out of control and they get caught especially if they're in a you know a, a high profile position i mean that's all you hear of the story right and then they get as you said kind of excommunicated but you know, um, the the film is about that all of us were out of control at some point of our journey and, you know, personally crazy. Right. I mean, I was personally crazy in the world and, and just doing dangerous things and, and hurting tons of people and around sex, around sex, hurting myself and just doing just really risky things. And, and you know, um,
0: well, but, but maybe you were just an alpha kind of guy, you know.
1: <laughs> I think I was a really wounded guy who found out mm-hmm. early on that I really liked the buzz of attention from uh, in my case from females and I that happened to me very early in my life in grammar school and I just I was hooked immediately. I still remember the girl's name in fourth grade and But
0: Paul, every man Heterosexual man would say that he has a thing for females. I would say <laughs> so. I don't think that really quite encapsulates the issue as you want to describe yeah. it. What are right. what are you saying beneath? Because I can hear a lot of guys saying, "Oh yeah, so I had a thing for girls from eight on." Like that's being a straight guy. So right. what's different in your case? I mean, what do you see as different in the me- the people in your story?
1: Well, I just think it became such a like such you know, such a need beyond any kind of normal need, right? And it, it became for me, it became like a pathological need for either sexual uh, release, or conquest, or, you know, the validation of, of getting someone to like me and have sex, having sex with me, and then mm-hmm. my ability to be able to discard them as just, you know, the object that I saw them as and, you know, it's it, but it was all to gratify me. And, and again, not knowing the time, but it was like, I just just had such low self esteem. And I was in so much emotional pain. And, you know, it wasn't until I was, you know, really in my teenagers, actually, where I started to feel like porn was the first red flag for me that I knew I had a problem with it. Like I, and again, this is a long time. It was back in the eighties and I didn't know there was any term for sex addiction, but I just knew I hated it in some ways, but wanted it in other ways and just had a lot of horrible experiences of, you know, throwing away magazines and then going to the dumpster and picking them out two days later. And, you know, it just it just was such an out-of-control process that, again, it, and so back then, I knew I wanted to stop, but I just, again, didn't know that there wasn't even a term for this stuff, you know, for an addictive process around this stuff.
0: How did you find your way? How did you find a new path? I mean, because I imagine you found recovery from sex addiction in your own life before you made the film.
1: Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I went to my first meeting in the mid 90s uh so basically it's in my film actually i was going to the white pages this is before the internet came out and, and i was looking for sex and i i saw sex and love addicts anonymous and sex addicts anonymous in the white pages and i mm. I, I was kind of doing a lot of spiritual work in that point in my life this is back in the mid 90s and i realized this is for a reason like i was really into-
0: <laughs> there's a message here yes <laughs> i need to pay attention <laughs>
1: So actually, believe it or not, I called because at the time you called and I think I had a meeting scheduled mailed to me. And then I, I went to a meeting and it scared the bejesus out of me. Bunch of guys, you know, talking about prostitutes and, you know, and this is again, this is like 1995. And
0: well, can I just say like, Paul, one thing you point out just in that very statement, like there's this stuff I want to do and I'll, I'll don't give a shit who it hurts or how it hurts or I'm just going to go do it sexually. But then going and talking about it is terrifying.
1: Oh, I, I slinked into this. I still remember where it was. It was in San Francisco in the Mission District in this little back of a abandoned store in the mid '90s. And there was like six guys, and one guy was like you know a crossdresser, and one guy was you know <laughs> seeing prostitutes, and I was I was petrified. But yet I knew there was something in common with these guys, <laughs> you know. And I you know it scared me. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't go back to a meeting for a little while. I mean, I I, I went off and on for quite a few years before I finally committed to the program, which I think. Not uncommon, right? 12-step program. Yeah, the 12-step program. Sorry, yeah. And I found SLAA um, felt more suited for me because I also had a love addiction part of my story where I would get really hooked on a certain kind of woman and just would be just devastated if they broke up with me
0: sex and love addicts anonymous is the 12 step program you're talking about and i would agree with you by the way paul because i too remember starting out in the rooms of sex addicts meetings Um, i think i predate you by about 10 years and uh december 10th 1985 was my first uh, meeting and i remember thinking i'm never coming back to this place because i have nothing in common with these guys but that was what i was thinking when i felt what i how i felt in that room i realized i felt more comfortable than i felt in a very long time in that room Mm. So, you know, yeah, there is that initial fear, but there's also the sense of, wow, a place where I can talk about this, a place where I can belong, a place where I don't feel like a freak because I'm with a bunch of other freaks (laughs) And, and we're trying to change ourselves and we're trying to heal. I mean, those kind of environments are very powerful and very scary.
1: Oh, and so needed. Right. I mean, in terms of especially like being a man, you know, I didn't know how to express my feelings and what was going on inside me very well at all. I mean, and so, you know, just to hear other men talking about, again, their struggles and their emotions was like, yeah, as you said, there was a part of me is like, wow, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. But it was just it was just so terrifying as well. Right. Then if you throw in with that, the you know, the pretty consistent out of controlness that I felt at that time in my life too, which was so painful. It but part of me didn't want to go back because I just, you know, I almost felt like like the worst of the worst. Uh,
0: I think, you know, it's interesting you say that because I have sent obviously many, many people in over the years to 12 steps support and recovery. And I have to be very careful in telling them to listen for what they relate to, because I don't know about you, but when I first walked into those rooms and I think many, many people do, whether they're in AA or NA, or whatever program they're in, they walk in and they say, well, I'm not like that person. Well, I'm not like that person. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. And they kind of back their way out of the help that they might need because so they've true. convinced themselves that they're really not that troubled. And and my experience is most people who make their way to those rooms belong there.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, and again, maybe this is something me and you share in common, which is now being a therapist I can't speak for you, but but I I just even yesterday I was basically telling a guy, look, you got to go to five meetings. You're gonna initially probably look for the differences between you and the other people in the room. That's normal, but don't let that get you you know. Don't talk yourself out of the meetings because of that, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're gonna probably hear enough stuff that you're gonna want to come back after the five meetings. But again, it's a very natural instinct, I think. To say, I don't want to be like these guys, right?
0: But you know, I think it's more than that, Paul. Honestly, I think, and this is actually what I was going to bring up. I think there's intimacy in those rooms. Mm. I think there's non-sexual intimacy and relationships and community and all of that as a sex addict, I find terrifying. (laughs) So it's almost like the very thing that we all really want to have in the pursuit of the sex is available on a completely different level it's sort of like digging in the empty well when you're out there as a sex addict you're never going to find the water right. but then we walk into those rooms that are just you know full of warm water and we just can't wait to get out <laughs> cuz it's not intense it's not doesn't brain change it's not overwhelming it's not like a drug it's just people being real yes and we hunger for that but it's also terrifying right so what what made you do this movie i mean it, and i have to say that you know, I have a lot of ambitions. I've written nine books, <laughs> you know, I'm a kind of crazy person in my own way, but making a movie just never seemed a little bit bigger than me. How did you end up making The Courage to Love?
1: Well, and, and I I admire your you and your writing, by the way, and recommend Cruise Control and Out of the Doghouse, um, anyhow. <laughs> but, uh, you know, to be honest with you, Rob, I, as a young boy, actually even, like, made little movies with my mom's film camera back in the 70s. And I just had this kind of natural yearning towards film and then video. And so I actually thought for a while, that's what I wanted to do with my life way before I became a therapist. So I had this kind of benefit when I got into grad school to become a therapist. I had this background in documentary filmmaking. I shot news for almost three years for NBC. And, you know, I had a lot of experience editing and shooting and interviewing. So I kind of knew like I had these skills and like I hadn't quite made the movie that I really wanted to make. And that film, honest to gosh, man, as part of my 11th step, I went to a 10-day silent meditation retreat, which nearly killed me. And one of the things I got from that retreat was the film. It came to me Mm. in my 10 days of silence, meditating. Not the whole film, obviously, but the title, the original title, and and just the idea of making the film came to me as I was sitting in silence for ten days.
0: And you did it. How did you find and and how did you find people? And we're talking at what year did you do the film?
1: Well, I mean, I started shooting it when I was in grad school. I started shooting it in like two thousand seven, and the you know I started by actually asking if I could have it be my master's degree project, which they initially said yes, and then changed their mind, <laughs> and so I needed to do a, a, a thesis too. But um. I found the characters honestly because I, I'd been in SLAA Rob uh, you know, at that point for gosh, only like 20 years. And so I knew so many people. And I was shocked that nobody would want to be interviewed in front of my camera, right? They're like, My my wife's family doesn't know I'm a sex addict, my boss doesn't know I'm a sex addict, and they worried that the film being out in the world would would ruin their lives. So
0: And what and what happens when my kids grow up and they see this? Yes.
1: Right? And so I bumped up against this, this closet of shame that I, I thought wasn't going to be there because I knew so many people for so many years in recovery and had such close relationships. So basically I had a friend interview me, which I didn't want to, I didn't want to be in the film personally. Cause I, again, you know, I was starting to become a therapist and I was in grad school for that, but I, you know, just interview me and we'll see, maybe I'll use it. And then that was the interview that ended up being in the film later on. And then Jay, I found on the internet, I, I was putting ads on Craigslist to look for subjects and was getting a lot of negative emails from people saying sex addiction isn't real and you know Mm -hmm. this film's going to be a disservice to the world and so i was kind of hopeless man to be honest with you for a while there and so jay was a complete accident i googled sex and love addiction memoir and his book was on amazon i never even heard of the guy before Mm -hmm. and contacted him and that was the start he said yes i went up to seattle interviewed him he put me in touch with greg who's in the film and then ultimately when i was editing the film it was going to be about just me greg and jay and i i always wanted to have you know a gay uh, person in the film a person of color i want to have a female but no one i couldn't get anyone so finally sylvia who ended up being in the film i was literally editing the film and she contacted me and had remembered me in the rooms because in the rooms i'd been talking about it for years hey anybody want to be interviewed for my film i and uh she contacted me randomly like a few years later and said, Hey, if you're still doing that film, I'd like to be in it. So, and she was, I think a real blessing because a lot of females have really connected to her story in
0: the film. You know, it's interesting, Paul, that you, you know, that we're talking about people's willingness to share because, you know, recently I I was invited to be on the today show with Megan Kelly. And I, uh, I was involved with a show that where they're shooting a woman named Erica Garza And Erica just wrote a book called Getting Off, uh, One Women's Journey Through Porn and Sex Addiction. And when I met Erica and I read her book and I just thought, oh, my God, I have been waiting for a woman like this to come along for 15 years, a woman who would just say, hey, this is what I did. I had these issues. I've worked on it. And she has a nine-year-old daughter. And it's fascinating because when people have asked her, even on the air, like, well, what happens when your daughter sees this film and she realizes her mother had all these issues? And she said, well, I guess we'll have to talk about it. (laughs) But it's not like, oh my God, I cannot let anyone know that. You know, The secrecy of the disease of addiction is part of the stigma. And yet the stigma is, it's sort of reinforcing people are afraid to talk about it and that stigmatizes it, but then it doesn't get talked about it. And then escalates the stigma, and especially when we get to sex. And you actually chose to include someone who was an offender, who acts out through exhibitionism, which I thought was brave of you because it's really going beyond sex addiction and looking at somebody who is engaged in arrestable behavior and someone who has maybe done more overt harm to people than your average sex addict.
1: Yeah. And, you know, so that was Jay Parker. I mean, I, you know, and again, he was the first person that agreed to be filmed besides myself. And, you know, at the time, Rob, to be honest with you, because this is, again, back in 2007, I didn't know back then the difference between sex offending and sex addiction. I mean, I was, you know, I was in grad school, but there was not even a a mention of sex addiction in my three years as a grad student.
0: No, they don't bring that stuff up in grad school. Isn't that
1: Not at all. So I I, the only understanding I had a sex addiction, honestly, was my own journey and all that I read. And I devoured every book out there about it, uh, you know, but um, when I interviewed Jay, I just saw him as a sex addict. And then over time learned, especially when I started showing this to audiences, and a lot of people have strong reactions to Jay. Um, I started to realize, oh, yeah, you know, and then, you know, hearing from folks like you and others, it's like just starting to learn more of the the, the difference between sex addiction and sex offending.
0: Can you define that now maybe for people who are listening? Because that might be useful. Or did you want me to, me to cover that, uh, that base?
1: I, I just see it as, you know, someone who gets off on the violation of, of the boundaries of others. I think there's a lot of eroticized rage. I, I think in the film, it's clearer that Jay had a lot of rage towards his mother. And I think he, he kind of saw that the one thing that pissed her off was the neighbor who flashed himself to her. So he learned that behavior and learned, hey, this this pisses my mom off. And he got off on that. And I think a lot of his stuff was his hatred towards his mom and that just leaked out and he got off on violating the world, you know, and so.
0: So so this is a gentleman who is an exhibitionist and we define him as a misdemeanor offender because it's not a contact offense. Exhibition and voyeurism are offenses that are considered misdemeanor offenses. They often have highly addictive components and, and, If you talk through voyeurism or exhibitionism with someone who has those issues, they sound just like an addict, but their issues are slightly different because they're actually causing harm to people in a different way. So um, I'll just give a quick definition for sexual offending. Sexual offending is uh, simply non-consensual sex. So, you know, if I stop by your, if, you know, Paul, if we were dating... (laughs) And you said, hey, Rob, stop by my house when I'm showering tomorrow morning and look in the shower. And I want you to check me out. And then we'll go in the shower and do whatever and then go to work. Well, when I show up at your house tomorrow morning and I'm looking in your window and you wave because you're showering and undressed, I have not offended you. Mm. But if you look out your window tomorrow morning and you see a strange person, male or female, looking in while you're showering, you are being offended. Because you haven't given consent. And so it's really that defines offending is consent defines old enough to consent, healthy enough to consent, drunk enough to consent, you know, all of those things. Is it legal to consent? That's really consent is what defines offending. And so in this case, Jay, the gentleman in your film, was engaged in non consensual behavior. And that's what makes it offending. He was exhibiting himself. That's right. Which I actually think, you know, what you did give in the film to, to, there were so many people with that issue, is you gave them hope that there was a place they might go because the offender community, as you probably know, is not particularly a fan of the whole field of sex addiction and understandably so because they think that offenders will just say, oh, well, I never meant to rape that woman. I'm just a sex addict. And clearly violent offending has nothing to do with sex addiction.
1: That's right. And that's, to be honest with you, Rob, that's a question. I mean, honestly, I've gotten asked so many times at screenings of my film with audiences just is, you know, just do all sex addicts, you know, like, again, have the urge to rape people or be with children, all these kind of stereotypes. And I, you know, again, my experience in the rooms for 20 years was there's very few people that were, you know, into the sex offending realm.
0: Well, when you hear the term out of control sexual behavior, um, people get scared and they start thinking about their kids and they wonder if you're going to go over to a, you know, to a schoolyard and grab, snatch and grab their kid. And, yes. you know, that's offending behavior. That's not addictive behavior. Um, but there are some misdemeanor offenders who have some addictive qualities. And there are certainly people who look at child porn who have also addictive qualities. And, you know, we help those people the best way we can. Hey there, I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. But I'm curious, Paul, like you decided to become a therapist after the film was made. And if you did, how has the film affected your practice? I mean, there you are on the screen talking about your own problem. (laughs) Now you have to see people and say, oh, yeah, that was me.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, so I started the film, yeah, I was shooting it when I was in grad school. And, you know, again, I didn't know at the time, right, how this would affect me in my career and was going back and forth about putting myself in it and, and all that stuff. But ultimately, I, I kind of grew with the idea I wanted to be in the film, because I'd done a documentary previously. And I, you know, it was a pretty good documentary, but I wasn't in it. And I'd travel with it and stuff. But people wanted to know about the people in the film, right? So I was like, well, at least they'll be, you know, and I've had people, you know, feel a connection towards my story, which has been really, you know, really gratifying in a way, right. But I do want to say personally, though, when the film first screened to an audience, I, you know, my, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, my wife's family was in the audience. And I, I mean, I was horrified on some level, thinking, Oh, my gosh, my mother-in-law now knows is going to know I've seen prostitutes in my past, like she didn't know that, right. So there's been that whatever that is, that shame still that's there of like, Oh my, but there's also like, it's, it's a, I don't know. There's a healing, right. Of, of, wow. My mother in law knows that, but you know what? It's like, I accept myself now and she still accepts me and it, it, there's a healing in that. Right. And so, but you know, as a therapist, it's a little tricky because I actually had a guy, you know, who was very direct with me when he first came to see me, he said, you know, I, saw your trailer online and he says, I initially wasn't going to come see you as a therapist because he saw, you know, this guy's probably got really bad boundaries. Right. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's a fair, that's a fair assessment. You know, I said, I did it because I felt called to do it. Um, I think it's helped a lot of people and I think there's going to be certain clients I probably lose and I might not even know it because of the film out there. And like, you know,
0: if I had a guess as someone who's practiced for 25 years, I would say that it probably is a wash because there are people who are going to come to you saying, "Oh, I feel safe because this guy completely understands me." Mm. And then there's other people who are going to say, "Well, what if this guy doesn't have it together? Maybe I should see someone who doesn't have those issues." And yes. you know, I do want to say to the anybody who's listening that, you know, a therapist is only as good as the work that they've done on themselves. Mm. People will often come to see us thinking, well, we're the secular priests. I mean, we are the ones who are going to heal them and, you know, our words are going to carry them into their healing. And, you know, we're not that powerful and many, many of us aren't that good, but um, (laughs) of the really good therapists who I admire and respect like you, we've done our work. And so I have absolutely no shame about my sexual history or the behavior that I did. I'm sad about the people I've harmed, you know, when I let people down or, you know, through an affair or something like that, but I don't feel ashamed of it because I... I think that it was a part of how troubled I was and what I had to grow beyond. And my belief is that if people like you and I can turn our lemons into lemonade, you know, or as they say in the 12-step programs, the promises speak to this, that we won't be ashamed, that we will be able to carry our message in a way that will help other people and not leave us feeling bad about ourselves. I mean, the truth is I've been out as a sex addict for 25 years and you have done a film about it and you're still walking, talking, chewing gum, having a relationship and in a practice and so am I. Yep. so um, maybe our fears are not as founded as we thought they were.
1: And the, the other piece, I and I said this to you earlier before we got on here, which is that you know I've gotten these random emails uh, over the last few years of you know uh, certain people from around the world who, or even in our country, who email me and say they've seen the film and they're getting into treatment or they've had this profound grief experience seeing the film and realized that they need help. And you know, I had a guy from Nepal uh, a week or two ago write to me and said, you know, he never knew what, what it was he was struggling with, but he'd been seeing prostitutes in his marriage. And he just thanked me so graciously with this long email. And I thought, you know, this is what it's worth. You know, it's like, we're all here for a short amount of time. And so I, that's what really helped me kind of finish the film and wanting to get out in the world was like, you know, it's like, if it's just about helping other people, right. It's the 12th step. And again, if I lose a client or two because of it, because of their own, I mean, you know, that's, it's, it's worth the risk.
0: Well, I actually would say to folks out there that you if someone has issues like alcoholism or drug addiction or they've had a mentally ill family member or something like that, that you know, if we have examined those experiences as therapists and we've worked through them ourselves, we're your greatest gift. We are your greatest hope because we can actually offer you hope in real time in the room that I've been there and I'm not there now. Yes. And that means that you may be there, but you don't have to be where you are now because I'm sitting in front of you and I got better. And so, you know, that is the kind of hope I think that we can offer to people by being transparent, especially about these kind of issues. But let me ask you something, Paul, if you were to do the Courage to Love again today, knowing what you, knowing what you know as a therapist and seeing the people that you're seeing now, um, and I'm th- thinking about, you know, how much the digital world has affected the clients that we see and their online call girls and their online porn and you know, all of that. Um, what do you think would be different now, either from your being a therapist or from the perspective of how the population is changing?
1: Well, I mean, that's just, that's just so hard to even, because I don't, I the, the the kind of film I'd make now would be just drastically different. I mean, I, I think that film is what needed to come out of me at that time in my life. And I don't know if I have another film in me. I
0: But if you did, what would you say today?
1: Well, I think part of what I would do is, if I could, is make it more broad in terms of, I think, the spouses and partners experience, you know, is so vital. And, and you know, a lot of the couple recovery I do now, I thought, God, it'd be so great to see couples who are down the road, right, who have been through this. Because I have couples who come in just in such the traumatized, you know, initial discovery crisis and they just feel like there's the woman feels like there's, or the sorry association woman, the partner feels like there's no hope. Is there anyone who gets through this and to have a film that shows that and you know, anyone out there listening, make the film. I, I don't think I have an Emmy man, Rob. It, it just, <laughs> it's a lot to, to make a film. And I, I think that was the film that needed to come out of me, man. Cause I think, you know, it, again, it's just where I was at in the journey and I wanted to make a story that to be honest with you, I felt like what helped me most almost beyond any therapist or book was, the people in the rooms and their stories, and especially when they did the longer shares and in the 12-step meeting. So I I wanted to make a film that was kind of like a, an extended share in a 12-step meeting because I felt like that was the most powerful for me was the real stories of people. And to be honest with you, Rob, I interviewed a bunch of therapists for the movie. I had interviewed, interviewed a bunch of therapists and I ended up, they're all on the cutting room floor because I realized like, you know go read a book or, you know, go to a presentation. No, you know, God bless therapist. But I wanted this again to be about us people who have had it and struggled with it and, and have gotten relief from it.
0: You know, Paul, I, I, I think one of the hardest things for me and you today, I would think at least one of the harder things for me to experience is watching how younger, younger people are struggling mm. and, you know, when I think about you're doing something like that today, or, or of course, I'm imagining what I would want to see. I want to see some of those young men who are struggling with porn or what they call porn addiction. And I want to look at how the generational developmental challenges of dating and sexuality have changed so radically with Tinder and Grindr and Ashley and all of those hookup apps. And, you know, I have never, you know, I think most people don't realize that if you click on any of the tube channels to look at porn, you're immediately going to get somebody who's in a foreign country looking back at you naked <laughs> saying, hi, would you like me to pay you to, would you like to pay me to undress or do what, you know, that we are that, you know, looking at porn is is, is a, a nano moment away from being with an online prostitute. And just all of the challenges, you know, I, you know, Paula, you sound younger than me, but I know you're not a lot, maybe 10 years. And we grew up in porn shops and we grew up in with dirty magazines, you know, and we grew Mm -hmm. up with videos. And we grew up in a world where there was, there were a lot of limitations around how much access you could have to people and content. And now we're living in a world that is completely without limits in terms of what you can access. And that has reduced, I don't know about what you're seeing, but in my office, a lot of young people with problems.
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, as you said, I mean, I used to have to get in my car and drive (laughs) late at night to the video store and feel shaky, and get out of my car, and go in there, and go in the secret adult section, and, and it
0: smelled bad, and smelled people looked funny, and, then, and they had cameras. And by the uh, way, I bicycled there.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then to walk out, and you know, I remember a couple of different times I saw people I knew, and it was just so horrifying. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, you want know, something funny? I remember one time I did it, and you know, the, going up to the to the checkout was so difficult, especially this one story used to go to by my house. It was a female cashier sometimes, and so I went up there. I remember she she pulled it up on the little computer, and she goes. You know, you've rented this twice before.
0: Oh,
1: oh my God! I literally wanted to die. I was like, okay, yes, I know I've rented this porn twice before, but it has some really good scenes in it.
0: I had a call. I had a friend. You know, you talked about people sharing things at twelve-step meetings, and I remember this call. This friend of mine in recovery many years ago who would share that he was so he spent so much time at the adult bookstore that they gave him a coffee cup <laughs> so that in between, you know, he would have his experience and then he wanted to stay around until he was ready for his next experience and so he would sip coffee with with the adult bookstore staff and i think yeah that's who become your no, no offense to anyone who works in adult bookstores but that kind of becomes your companions when you are living in that way those are the people and the places where you're spending the most time
1: i hate to say it but i'm i'm grateful that i didn't grow up in that era of that as you said we have these younger clients coming in because i i was crazy with you know when match.com first came out in the 90s i mean i was i used to have the little yahoo messenger thing up but they used to have a little ding when a new email would come in
0: that's the love addict part
1: yeah and i I every time a ding would come in i'd be in my kitchen ding and i was like a pavlov dog i'd go to my computer and it's like oh a new email from a woman but it was so much slower it was like a email it wasn't like there wasn't cell phones and stuff and i mean and i was binge dating like nobody's business and god to think about me on tinder i'd be dead i'd be somewhere i don't know where i'd be but it it these people that walk into our offices, I mean, I feel so sorry for them. They're having erection dysfunction at age 24, right? Because they've been looking at such, such stimulating porn since they're 12 or 11. And yeah, they, they have a whole different, <laughs> different plight they're growing up with.
0: So folks, this is the director and producer and writer of The Courage to Love. And it is a film made about 10 years ago about sex addiction and misdemeanor offending. And my guest is Paul Gnocchio, who is a therapist in the San Francisco area. And Paul, how would they reach you if somebody wanted to, I don't know, do a workshop with you or reach you online, or maybe they wanted to do The Courage to Love too, um, and back it? How would they find you? Well, and just to, to, to
1: correct it, the, the film did come out in 2014. So I, I didn't finish it till 2014. So it's about four years old. Uh um th- you know th- there's a variety of ways to to find me or the film i i initially just had it on the courage to com website and then i got it on the amazon prime eventually and then now i'm at the point where i'm letting it you know out into the world for free i put it on youtube so anyone can watch it for free and then contacted me you know my website's my name paul ginocchio com and um you know, as you probably have the same experience, Rob. I just love helping men, women, and couples who you know are struggling with this, and and kind of where I you know I was in the beginning, like not knowing what this is, and helping you know assess if this is an addictive process in them, and educating them about it. It's just also very rewarding, and then obviously seeing the clients who you know do the work as I did, and. I know you did, to really, you know, to trudge that happy road and and, and to watch them rebuild their lives and their relationships is just, it's just incredible.
0: Well, I do think one of the reasons that I love this field and have stayed in this field, despite it not being, you know, a primary issue for me today, is because I love the recovery. We get to see, Paul and I, people move so quickly. You know, when you take a lifetime of shame away from someone, when they've told you their worst secrets and you say, okay, so what else you got? <laughs> um, right. When somebody says, I know I'll never be loved ever by anyone because I did this or I did that. And you say, eh, probably you will. You know, When we get to diffuse that shame and that self-hatred and give people hope, change happens quickly. And it doesn't yes. just happen because we're all that talented. It, it happens because we're willing to ask the difficult questions and sit and listen to the difficult answers until people feel safe and like they're not alone in their brokenness. And that is a gift that we get to give to the world every single day. Thank you, Paul, for this opportunity. And I know we'll be doing more stuff together. I'm gonna get you up on the sex and relationship healing website. Maybe you could do some groups or some lectures or interact with some folks on there. I'm looking forward to that.
1: Whatever you need, man.
0: Thank you most of all for spending the time. Okay, Rob, thanks so much. We will talk again. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On seekingintegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at rob at seekingintegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.